ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, a little visit to Australia's home of poo transplants. Delicious. (laughs) News about what might be happening in your general practice and two of the most common causes of death globally and in Australia, and they're related, and they're stroke and dementia, and how a heart procedure may help to prevent dementia. Well, let's talk about that, because on stroke, there's been a really big chunk of new knowledge that's come out recently. Lancet Neurology has a commission on stroke, which brings together the latest research and statistics, that kind of thing. Can you take me through what the main points of that were? Well, one, stroke. Now we're talking here about clots in the arteries in the neck that spin off to the brain. That's the commonest one in Australia. And hemorrhage in the brain, and which is more common in countries like Japan. But globally, clot-based strokes are the commonest cause. And high blood pressure, smoking, obesity, diabetes, those are the kind of risk factors for stroke as well as age. And it's the second commonest cause of death in the world and also a major cause of disability. And what this commission has shown is that over the next 20 or 30 years, the numbers of deaths will double internationally. That is so terrifying to me and kind of feels counterintuitive when you know that we're making so many, you know, medical progressions. Science has has given us so much. That's in a lucky country like Australia, but if you're living in a low to middle income country, you don't necessarily have a good network of general practice. They're not necessarily controlling blood pressure well, controlling smoking, and they're not necessarily got high quality um, healthcare interventions to treat stroke when it occurs and actually rehabilitate. And the really worrying thing that they're finding is that it's increasing in people under 55. Why? Probably obesity and diabetes, although it's not quite known. Now, in Australia, we've been a world leader in stroke reduction. Deaths from stroke in Australia have been declining at 2 or 3% a year for probably more than 30 years, which is dramatic. But pre-COVID, that was beginning to tail off, and we actually covered that a little bit on the health report. And then post-2020, there's been an uptick in deaths from stroke, some of which will be COVID, and some of which may well have happened anyway and reflects what's happening internationally. But one of the causes of stroke is atrial fibrillation. And there are a lot of people in Australia with atrial fibrillation. This is an abnormal heart rhythm, which can cause stroke because blood pools in these atria at the top of the heart and spins off and causes stroke. And it also may well cause dementia. So you get lightheaded, you get palpitations, you can faint. Uh, Hyperactive thyroid is another cause of atrial fibrillation and is a real problem. Yeah, on a previous health report, I spoke to a Brisbane man called Paul about what it's like to have atrial fibrillation, just in case you have any doubt about how awful it can be, because here's what he said. It feels like a horse kicking in your chest and in the back of your throat. It makes you sweat. It makes you feel uneasy, quite a bit anxious sometimes. Tiredness, of course, breathlessness. That was Paul. Now, Professor Jonathan Kalman is an authority on atrial fibrillation and its treatment. He's at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. In Australia, the numbers would be considered around 500,000 people will be affected by atrial fibrillation. We know that it is a condition that increases with advancing age. And so beyond 60, 70, 80, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population may well 
be affected by atrial fibrillation. And it occurs at a time in their life when people are often still extremely active, working, and can really impact their quality of life at that time that they develop this. There are two ways of treating atrial fibrillation. One is using drugs to control the speed of the heart and the rhythm, trying to make it more regular. The other is what's called catheter ablation. And Jonathan Kalman is one of the pioneers of the procedure in Australia. Ablation for atrial fibrillation now has been around probably for close to two and a half decades, but has been evolving and improving over that period of time and is now a very mature and advanced procedure. It's a procedure where we go in through the veins, usually accessed or almost invariably accessed through the vein in the groin, and we go up into the heart and we cross the membrane in the middle of the heart from the right side to the left side and we either cauterize or freeze the areas responsible for initiating atrial fibrillation so that they can no longer stimulate or initiate that heart rhythm disturbance where the heart's beating rapidly and erratically and inefficiently. So you're trying to just basically get rid of the electrical wiring that's gone wrong? Exactly that. Surprisingly, the usual location for that abnormal electrical wiring is sleeves of muscle that are inside the veins coming from the lungs to the heart, the so-called pulmonary veins. And that was an observation made approximately two and a half decades ago. So what are the success rates? I mean, in the old days, when I first covered this, cardiologists were having to go in three, four times to finish off the job. What is it now? So the success rate has certainly improved markedly over time and that's with the evolution of technology which is really markedly better than it has been in the past. The success rate is determined by two major parameters. One is patient-related factors. So what type of atrial fibrillation is this? Is it the paroxysmal form or is it the continuous or persistent form? And are there other structural problems with the heart? So more advanced structural abnormalities of the heart will be associated with lower success rates. And the other is the conversation we're having a lot these days is how we define success. And for many years, we've defined a failed ablation as one associated with 30-second recurrence. And we now know that 30 seconds really is a meaningless number in terms of symptoms and in terms of the risks associated with so atrial just, So just to clarify, this is when you're having a monitor on you and you have a short burst of atrial fibrillation that lasts 30 seconds. Exactly. That's exactly right. And most patients are completely unaware of that. And we're moving to an understanding where probably AF that lasts more than an hour is to pick a rough figure is associated with patient symptoms and also potentially with risks. So when we think about those factors, I think we can comfortably say to people that the success rate for this procedure varies somewhere between 70 and 80% and that the likelihood of needing a second procedure is probably in the 15 to 20% range. And again, it really does depend on what type of AF you have. And on complications and side effects, one of the feared side effects, complications in the early days was, particularly when you were doing repeated burning of the veins, is that you would get a scarring problem of the left atrium. So to explain to the audience, you've got four chambers in the heart, you've got the upper chambers, the atria, the lower chambers, the ventricles, and the blood comes into the atria to fill up the ventricles, and that you would get shrinkage of the left atrium. And that's an untreatable condition. In fact, heart transplantation is the only treatment for it. To what extent is that a problem with ablation or was that a theoretical issue? 
It's an incredibly rare complication. It's one, I must say, in over 4,500 ablations in our institution that we have never seen. And I think it's very specifically related to very extensive ablation. And that's not really performed in any labs that I'm aware of in Australia. There had been a few labs around the world suggesting that you need this form of extensive ablation in order to have higher cure rates in patients with more advanced forms of atrial fibrillation. We've never gone down that path and it certainly is an exceedingly rare complication. Jonathan Carman, apart from stroke, one of the consistent associations with atrial fibrillation is an increased risk of dementia. A recent very large study comparing drug treatment of atrial fibrillation with catheter ablation has found that ablation reduces the dementia risk. One of the researchers was Dr Stephanie Harrison of the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute in Adelaide. It's been quite well established that having atrial fibrillation can increase a person's risk of dementia. There's been many different research studies suggesting this. When a person has atrial fibrillation, it can increase their risk of stroke. So people with atrial fibrillation have a five-fold increased risk of stroke. But also because of the impact on blood flow in the heart of atrial fibrillation, the potential increased risk of clotting and other mechanisms it may also increase a person's risk of dementia. So this is not a randomised trial here. You've observed people who've got atrial fibrillation and their treatment and then followed them through, I think nearly 21,000 people in fact, in their late 60s, who had or had not got catheter ablation for their atrial fibrillation. What did you find over what period of time? We followed, it's actually over 20,000 people with who had catheter ablation. We matched them with the same amount of people who did not have catheter ablation, so they just had medicines instead. We followed them for at least five years, retrospectively, so that means we looked back in time. We found that the people who had catheter ablation had a lower risk of dementia compared to those who did not. And we used different statistical approaches to try and account for the differences between people apart from whether they had catheter ablation or not. So we accounted for differences in their age, other health conditions. Well, this is a very large study and it agrees with the findings of other observational studies which have found similar results. So people having catheter ablation having a lower risk of dementia. And is it all dementia or is it just vascular dementia? So in this study, we looked at all types of dementia. When we looked by the different types, we found it for both Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. The main outcome, we just looked at all types of dementia. It was like a 48% reduction. It's not insignificant. No, so this is like the relative reduction, but relatively there was a yeah, 48%. I mean, it's fine to say you've had ablation, but the ablation might not have worked. Were you able to correlate with success? Unfortunately, in this study, we weren't able to look at whether the ablation was successful or not. So that's an important consideration. The bottom line? Importantly, atrial fibrillation isn't always detected. Um, so to consider any of these different treatments, firstly, we need to detect it. And with emerging um, smart technologies and new technologies for detecting atrial fibrillation, hopefully in the future, we will see more opportunities for people to detect atrial fibrillation earlier so that appropriate treatment can be initiated. Yeah, there's devices for iPhones and wearables that may well be quite accurate in detecting um, atrial fibrillation. That was Dr Stephanie Harrison. 
Jonathan Kalman has recently done a trial comparing ablation with drug therapy for atrial fibrillation, looking at psychological distress. It's an observation I made just in the office when I was sitting with couples and they were talking to me about, let's say, husband's atrial fibrillation. And the wife would say, look, he's just not the same person anymore. He's withdrawn and irritable and morose and frankly depressed. And I'd heard that so many times over the years that I thought this is important and something we need to quantify and evaluate and see how we're doing because traditionally cardiologists have asked questions about palpitations and breathlessness and exercise tolerance and dizziness. But we haven't thought about the psychological and emotional impact of the symptoms on our patients to an extent. And is the cause that you're worried about when the next attack of atrial fibrillation is going to come on and what it's going to do to you? Is that what's underlying this? That's a big part of it. It's the uncertainty of another episode. It's the curtailment of lifestyle. People stop exercising, stop doing the things that they love because they're worried that it'll trigger an episode or they don't want to travel because they're worried that they'll get an episode when they're far from home or far from help. And so they start to constrict and reduce their lifestyle and that has a secondary impact. And if it's continuous AF and that impact is ongoing, you know, they can't exercise in the way they used to, you know, they feel unwell much of the time, the drug side effects. So all of those things, I think, add up to a significant impact on people's psychological well-being. Now, ablation isn't the only therapy for atrial fibrillation. You can have drugs which affect the heart rate, to slow the heart rate down, which is where you get the exercise tolerance problem, and ones that control the rhythm. And what you did was a randomised trial of ablation versus medical therapy, where the outcome you were looking at was psychological distress. What did you find? Patients who underwent ablation over 12 months of follow-up had significant reductions in their AF burden, in their physical well-being, and that with that, really very dramatic improvements in their mental health that weren't seen in the medical arm. And that that improvement in those markers of anxiety and depression was sort of gradual in that at three months, it was trending to a significant difference. By six months, it was clearly very different. And by 12 months, that difference had increased again. So that what we were seeing is that over that period of time, as patients got their confidence back, that they could return to physical activity and return to doing the things they love and that they did do that. And they were now off their medications and doing well. That sense of psychological and emotional well-being improved progressively. Can the country afford ablation to be the primary therapy and are there enough trained cardiologists to do it? There are quite a number of studies now showing the overall economic benefit of catheter ablation in that patients aren't coming back to doctors repeatedly for change of medication. They aren't presenting to emergency departments for cardioversion, the electrical zap that we give them when they're in AF to get them back to normal. And we are seeing reductions in many studies in the complications of atrial fibrillation, the risks of stroke and of heart failure 
and then the other impacts such as premature mortality. The technology is expensive, but the costs of the technology are dropping progressively. And when you look at the big picture, it is indeed cost effective. In terms of the number of physicians, there's certainly been a significant increase in the number of physicians performing this procedure. There are new technologies coming all of the time. And so we do have a lot of people in the training pipeline. And I think that we will be able to offer this procedure very widely and very rapidly. But we must continue to think about which patients are those who are most appropriate to receive the procedure. Jonathan Carman, thank you for joining us on the Health Report. Thanks so much, Norman. Great to be here. Jonathan Carman, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. Fecal microbe transplants poo transplants, are something we've talked a lot about on The Health Report over the years. It has that perfect marriage of being fascinating, having real promise of improving health, but also having that ick factor that, let's be honest, we all love. But despite a lot of talk about poo transplants, they haven't actually really been very widely available at all. Yes. Are you surprised? I mean... Are you lining up for one, Norman? Well, the, the one poo transplant that I quite fancy is some evidence that if you are thin, you have a thin <laughs> microbiome. So if you were actually to have a poo transplant from a thin person to somebody like me who tends to the <laughs> rotund, then, well, you know, kind of rotund, then um, that might um, benefit you. I should have known that that's what you'd say. Well, anyway, there's other health applications for this as well, Norman, apart from weight loss. Uh, And the home of a world first product in this space is actually here in Australia, in Adelaide of all places. As I say that, that sounds a little um, unkind to South Australia. One of the big challenges with faecal transplants is scaling it, culturing the microbes so you don't have to get a donor every time you have someone who needs a transplant. But it is a hurdle that this group, Biome Bank in South Australia, has managed to overcome with something that they call donor-derived microbiome therapy. And I was lucky enough to be in Adelaide recently. I went and visited the facility the other day and had a chat with CEO Sam Costello. It essentially means that you've collected the stool from a healthy person. You can person. say poo. poo. I'm pretty sure yeah. you're very, uh, very used to saying that one, yeah, actually. Yeah. So it is, yeah, exactly. So poo from a healthy person and then it was all well screened and then the process is all very standardised. But essentially the product is that, you know, like if you had um, a blood transfusion, it's collected from a donor. Whereas this, what we call this second generation of therapies, the cultured therapies, where we get the individual microbe from the stool originally, but we can culture it individually and we can culture all of the many hundreds of bacteria that exist in the stool. And then we could bring those forward as therapies that no longer require a donor because we can grow them in the lab, we can brew them up. Blood transfusion is such a great example because we still do it the same way. We still have humans rolling their sleeves up and taking blood out and giving them to other humans. Amazing. Mm. And we do that at a pretty big scale. But is that why this sort of faecal transplant space has been slow growing is because that was the model until now? There's been a few things. One has been the evidence base. So in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of research into this field, a lot of scientific papers and studies being conducted. There's been positive studies, let's say for the treatment of C. difficile infection, there's now many large studies that support the use. That's dramatically changed where this treatment sits in the therapeutic paradigm, like it's in international guidelines for the treatment, say now. Also the way that this product is viewed by the regulator didn't naturally fit perfectly into an existing regulatory space, but regulators have now 
approved products, both in the US and Australia. So you're still looking for donors. Why, if you've already got what you need to brew up what you're doing? Mm. The donor-derived products are still going to be needed for the foreseeable future. The cultured therapies that we have and the ability to grow the bugs individually, those therapies will need to go through phased trials. So we're starting our first clinical trial next year for one of these cultured therapies, but it'll be a number of years before those therapies go through trials and, and are finally approved. It will be a number of years, but we do expect, or we hopeful that some of these therapies would be approved. And, and so then the field may transition towards these cultured therapies that have a number of advantages over the donor drive. So you do have a product in market yep. at the moment though? It's a donor drive therapy. It treats C. difficile infection, which is a nasty bacteria that overgrows the bowel after antibiotics. And with this disease, traditional antibiotic therapy can be effective, but in patients who don't respond, the antibiotics can perpetuate the underlying problem, which is the loss of gut microbes in the first place. And so this therapy really steps in to replace those missing microbes and to crowd out the C. difficile so it can't recur and cause the symptoms. If you're dancing around it, talking about poo transplants, how yes. do you actually get it into someone's gut? Oh yeah, so our particular product is given via colonoscopy into the gut, so the gastroenterologist goes in and oh, instills it. more invasive than I thought. Yeah, and we are working on developing a capsule, which we hope in the future would be able to be given orally, but... but you don't want them getting out until they're in the right spot, right? No, like exactly, and you don't want to chew on that tablet, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, at the moment, it's just delivered directly to the bowel, and it's very effective by that. Do you see this as always being a space that's quite specialised, or do you see a situation down the track where people maybe are buying something like this over the counter in the same way that they might buy a probiotic at a pharmacy at the moment? The cultured therapies could go down two pathways. So either as a registered drug or therapeutic, that requires multiple clinical trials and approval and that, that's a long process and an expensive process but has a lot of rigor and so any medicine that's approved via that mechanism has gone through the ringer you know whereas the probiotic space it requires less in terms of all of those processes and it's faster but there are less claims made about what it can do and there are advantages and disadvantages to both the thing i'd most like to say is really that we and others in this space are really trying to help solve a massive problem for humanity and that's the loss of gut microbes. We're losing human gut microbes because of a number of modern factors that play in our environment. So poor food, low in fibre, highly processed antibiotic use. That There's necessary antibiotic use but there's a lot of antibiotics that are used in food and in other ways that are causing a loss of gut microbes. And if you lose the bugs, you lose the important functions they perform for us. And if you lose that function, then you can manifest disease. And so we believe that by restoring this ecology, we can have a big impact on human health. But the bigger picture is that we need to consider the loss of microbes in the first place. So that was Dr. Sam Costello, who's a gastroenterologist and CEO of Biome Bank in Adelaide. So tell me, does the lab smell of air freshener? Well, it's actually really interesting. I was surprised at how not smelly the lab was because uh, you know our digestive system is crawling with microbes, but they're actually not that easy to culture. They need an anaerobic environment. They're allergic to oxygen. And I actually did get to have a little peek in the lab where they do this culturing, accompanied by lab manager Lisa Kirkland. This is where all the isolates are stored in the minus 80 freezers. We will get 
fecal material from the screened FMT donors upstairs. The team will then collect that, bring that in here, and then all of our processes occur inside an anaerobic chamber. The team members will put their arms into the sleeves and then it will gas and vacuum to remove any of the oxygen from the surrounding air. We then open up the doors and enter in and then do all the work inside there. So we do our culturing, our media prep, purifying isolates, every single step basically inside the anaerobic chamber. And then I guess a big question to it all is once we've isolated some of the bacteria from the stool sample, pick colonies off of plates, we then need to know what the bugs actually are. So then we do all of our DNA next generation sequencing based work. And the team are in the middle of uh, 20 litre volume. And then yeah, the plan is to then scale up from there. Essentially, we've been able to do this at one litre and four litre. And we know that we need to get it up to like 10,000 litre size to really be able to supply. That was Dr. Sam Costello again and Dr. Lisa Kirkland, who's head of cultured therapies at Biome Bank. Yeah, where the sun don't go. <laughs> 12 million Australians have a medical condition that will never be cured. The challenge is to look after heart disease, diabetes, mental health and so on, um, so that you stay as well as possible and out of hospital. And that challenge almost always depends on your general practitioner and you working together productively. And that in turn depends on how well your doctor communicates, whether you and they have agreed on what you'd like to achieve, and that the medical consultation has been a worthwhile positive experience. To that end, Australia is about to participate in a global survey of patients with chronic illness experiences in general practice. The organisation behind it in Australia is the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Health Care, whose clinical director is general practitioner and former president of the Australian College of General Practice, Associate Professor Liz Marles. Welcome to the Health Report, Liz. Thank you, Norman. So the aim here is improving the quality of care and general practice in partnership with your GP. How will this survey achieve it? It's fair to say that at the moment, general practice in Australia is at a crossroads. Uh, we, as you've already outlined, are hearing about overcrowded emergency departments and patients struggling to get appointments. But there is a real lack of actual evidence as to what is happening in general practice and particularly from patient perspectives. So by participating in this survey, we're going to get data that will be at a practice level that will inform the actual general practice itself. Is it a threat to well, the general yeah. practice? No, not at all. No, no. All GPs want to know how they can improve the service that they give. And so getting that feedback from their own patient database, which allows them to compare how they're performing with other similar practices and, you know, also how Australia's healthcare system is performing compared to other international countries. Um, you know, we need that evidence if we actually want to do better. Give me a flavour of the questions you're asking. So there are questions that are getting the demographics uh, from people, uh, things like what sort of um, chronic diseases they might have, whether they've experienced pain recently. Then there are questions that are directly about the service that they have received, whether they have been satisfied with the service that they've received from their GP, how long they had to wait for an appointment, things like whether they were able to afford the care. The questions are about the patient outcomes as well as their actual experience in healthcare. People who participate in this survey will be giving 
doing some questionnaires that will help to identify their level of general well-being around their health, also their physical health and their mental health. You're looking for um, people to ask their general practice to get involved in this? Because you're doing it through the general practice. You're not doing it independent of the general practice. No, no, no. We're asking general practices to sign up and participate in this survey. And obviously, the more general practices we get, the the more rich the data set And if somebody wants to do the survey and the general practice isn't involved, can they participate? No, they have to do it through their general practice because it's all about their experience of the general practice. So what they could do, though, is they could talk to their general practice and ask them if they're participating. Um, You know, they could tell them that they've heard about it and uh, the practice may then decide that it's something that will be of interest to them to sign up to. There you go. Just strike fear in the heart of your practice. <laughs> Tell me you heard it on the health report and <laughs> Professor Liz Mars was telling them so. Thanks, Liz. And we'll have a link to the uh, to the Paris survey, which is what it's called, on the health report website. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Thanks, Norman. And that's the health report for this week. See you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.